Let's open our Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 21. In case you didn't know it, this is Palm Sunday, uh, and this is a very important Sunday, because Jesus has set his face like flint to Jerusalem, and he's on his way, and finally he reaches Jerusalem on this day, the conquering hero, but as we have seen, not in the way the rest of the world understood a conquering hero to come. So if you're able, would you stand with me, and I'll read from Matthew chapter 21. Heavenly Father, come upon us with your Holy Spirit, we pray today, that our eyes would be open, our hearts would be ready to receive your word, that we might understand it, that it might come and and, and live within us. Lord, that the things of Christ would be made real to us today. We ask this in his name. Amen. Matthew chapter 21, and I'll read the first 11 verses. When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says something to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. Now this took place, that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even a colt, the foal of a beast of a burden. And the disciples went and did just as Jesus had directed them and brought the donkey and the colt and laid on them their garments on which he sat. And most of the multitude spread their garments in the road and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. And the multitudes going before him and those who followed after were crying out saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the multitudes were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. When important people walk into a room, they hate not to be noticed. Okay, when, There are some people, we like to slide in and, and, and just not make a fuss, but there are other people who, when they walk into a room, they have to be noticed. Now, when you go to the, in, in England and you have the queen, uh, you know, the queen walks in, there's this announcement, everybody parts and she and Philip walk in and everybody sees and, and bows. Uh, in the old days, there used to be somebody who would stand at the door and they had a big stick. Um, and, and they would walk in and he'd pound the stick on the floor as every guest would come in, pound the stick and go, Bishop and Lady Jenkins, you know, and, and, and you, we would enter, okay? It's, I, honorary title. Okay, um, when the President of the United States walks into a room like the State of the Union address or gets off an airplane or something, we hear, hail to the chief. <laughs> there you go, okay? Well, hail to the chief, it's interesting, I did some research on hail to the chief. It's had its beginnings in Sir Walter Scott's Lady of the Lake. And it was first associated with the president in 1815 when there was a, 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 a celebration of uh, George Washington's birthday and the end of uh, the War of 1812. 
and it was played then under the title of Wreaths of the Chieftain. And in July 4th, in 1828, the U.S. Marine Band performed the song at the opening ceremony of the Chesapeake and Ohio Canals, and that was associated with John Quincy Adams. Andrew Jackson was the first living president who had that played upon his arrival and to honor the position of president. Uh, Martin Van Buren's inauguration, inauguration had it played. Julia Tyler, uh, the wife of John Tyler, requested its use to announce the arrival of the president. Sarah Childress Polk encouraged its regular use in this manner after it was used at her husband's inauguration. Now, William Seal, who was writing about that, said Polk was not an impressive figure. So some announcement was necessary to avoid the embarrassment of his entering a crowded room unnoticed. Oh, uh, that'd be terrible. Oh, there's the president. When did he come in? Oh, God. Um, so at, at large affairs, there was a drum roll that would play, and that was the sign for everybody to stand up. If you uh, Now, I, I hate to say this. I haven't watched the State of the Union address since Reagan gave it. But, uh, you know, usually there's a drum roll, and, and everybody knows that that's the time, and they all stand up, and we play Hail the Chief, and in comes the president. Now, Chester Arthur didn't particularly like the song, so he contacted John Philip Sousa and said, can't you come up with something better? And he wrote what was known as Presidential Polonaise. Hmm, I just didn't have that hail of the chief, you know, Presidential Polonaise. It sounds like a drink or something, I don't know. But as soon as he left office, the Marine Band went back to playing Hail to the Chief. And when Harry Truman was president, the, the Department of Defense made Hail to the Chief the official tribute to the president. So whenever somebody important like the president or the queen or the bishop walks in, oh, there's, there, you know, everybody has to know and all eyes are upon them. Well, Jesus, for the better part of three years, has not been interested in having a lot of fanfare when he enters or being actually pointed out to the rest of the crowds. Now, um, sometimes when you heal somebody, he, he would actually say, no, don't go and tell anybody. But, gee, I haven't been able to walk for 20 years, and I've been laying on this mat for 20 years, and along comes Jesus and heals me and then says, what, don't go tell anybody. Well, here I am running through the crowd because I've never walked. My legs were about this thick, nothing but bone. My muscles had completely atrophied, and I have been healed and restored. How can I not shout out? How can I not, with joyous praise, say, Did you see what he did? Can you see my legs? For 20 years, I've been an invalid. Now I can walk. He tried to keep it quiet to some degree, but when you're doing miracles like that, when you're going out to the countryside and feeding the 5,000, it's hard to keep that secret, okay? But on this day, on Palm Sunday, he's not interested in keeping a secret. He's not interested in it being hushed up anymore. He is entering Jerusalem to fulfill what the Heavenly Father has called him to do. And everybody in Jerusalem knows. What did, uh, what did it say? And when he entered Jerusalem, all the st- city was stirred. All the city was stirred. Now, does that mean every body everybody had heard pretty much i mean jerusalem was not such a large place that the word couldn't get out and when there is a train of people coming in and there's some big celebration word gets out and everybody was wondering who this was and the answer this is the prophet jesus from nazareth in galilee now you'll notice that in each of the gospels when you add the gospels all up fully one-third 
of the material of the Gospels, of the four Gospels, is devoted to the last week of Jesus' life. Fully one-third of all the material written in the Gospels concerns seven days and, and after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus' life. Now, Scripture doesn't do this just for no reason. I mean, usually the Word of God uses an economy of words. It gives it to us in the facts. And if we need elaboration on a topic, it will give us elaboration. But really, to take a third of the material and devote it to one week of the life of Jesus shows us the importance of this week. Now, obviously, we know that his life culminates in his giving of that life for us. But it's also the days leading up to that and what he does as he enters, what he teaches this week, the injustices of the trial, the struggle and the, and the pain that he goes through for our behalf, on our behalf. But remember, there are four Gospels, and they are not biographies. Okay? They are not four biographies. They are four Gospels, and they are written to get across two important things. Who is Jesus and what he did for us? Who is Jesus and what he did for us? Remember at the end of John's gospel, he writes, there, there, there are things I could have included and, and that would have filled up many more books that Jesus did. But I have included these for one reason, that you might believe. That you might believe he is the Son of God. That by believing you may have life everlasting. Now let's take a moment and look at that phrase that John says, that you might believe. That's why the Gospels were written. That's why the information that we have is given to us. This is not superfluous. This is not uh, somebody's idea that, oh, this would have been, oh, I'll just add this. this. This would be cool. I'll add this extra little bit. That's not the way the Gospels are written. The Gospels are written to communicate to us who Jesus is and what he did. Now, there is, as John said, there are many other things that could have been included within that, but these things are here because they are most important. They are most important important. That we might believe, that we might believe he's the Son of God, that he might believe that he left the right hand of his Father and came into this world, that we might believe he lived a sinless life, that we might believe he has given that life for us, that we might have life everlasting. There's no room really to fudge in this. There's no room to equivocate. There's no room to say that, that at the end of this week, when we get to his death and resurrection, that the resurrection was not really a, a bodily or physical resurrection. It was more of a spiritual resurrection. Uh, and or Because I, I remember, remember, I remember a, a head of a seminary coming out what, back when I was in seminary, and he said on Easter Sunday, he preached a sermon that said it wasn't a bodily resurrection. This is the resurrection of the heart, and that's what really what we're about. It's like, wow, no, no, that's not right. That's not what Scripture teaches. It teaches a bodily resurrection. It teaches the importance of that. It's not that Christ was willing to die, and that was enough of an offering, and the Lord accepted that. It's that he did die. He did give his life, and on the third day rose from the dead. Of course, we're running ahead the whole week. We're, we're on the entrance this week, okay? If God isn't capable of creating, if God isn't capable of flooding the earth, if God isn't capable of dividing the Red Sea, if he's not capable of providing food for his people for 40 years in the desert, if he's not capable of feeding the 5,000, he's certainly not capable of raising the dead. 
See, that's, that's one of the problems that we have. Where do we go back and say, well, yes, I don't really believe in those miraculous things, but this one miraculous thing I believe in. Why? Well, that's what my salvation depends upon. Because if the tomb is still occupied, we are fools. But I believe the tomb is empty. But I don't believe those rest, the rest of those miracles. Hmm. See, that's, that's a dangerous place to go. Where do we draw the line? If God is capable of raising the dead, he is certainly capable of doing anything and everything else that Scripture says he is. All right, back to Palm Sunday. This is the week that Jesus enters into Jerusalem, and he enters so that he might suffer and die for our sins. Now, I I say this on a regular basis because it is so shocking. I mean, look at us. Look at us. Would you give your life for this crowd? Okay, I mean, we're nice people. Let's say that. We're nice people. But understand, theologically, we are bad. Okay, We're not as bad as we possibly could be, but from head to toe, we're tainted by sin. And the only way to get rid of that taint, the only reason to get back before the Lord, is for the Lord to act in our behalf and to give us a way to know salvation. In fact, not just to give us a way that we might know it, but to save us himself. And it took the death of his son to do that. I think, am I really that bad that it took the death of the son of God to wash away my sin? No, it must be all of us combined. That we are all so bad that it took the death of the son of God and that was the only way that all of us could get to heaven. No, no. If it was only me and I was the only person, my sin is so bad that it would still take the death of the son of God to cleanse me of that sin. There is simply no other way than the spilling of the perfect blood of Jesus Christ. Scripture says it's the spotless Lamb of God. Well, Jesus comes to die for us. And the disciples, again, seem to be unaware, really, of what is going on around them, why he is coming into the city. So Jesus makes his way into Jerusalem on this day in a deliberate fashion. Now more than ever, every action Jesus takes is an indication of why he's here, an indication of what he is leading up to. It is full of theological significance. Jesus knows that there's an appointed time where he, may, he must die for all of us. And he wants to make it very clear who he is and what he has come to do. Now, he's telling us the significance of his death before it happens, and he has done this on several occasions. Um, Luke chapter 19, for the Son of Man came to what? Seek and save the lost. That's why he's here. Matthew chapter 20, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve to give his life as a ransom for many. Matthew chapter 12, and he said to them, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to you but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So Jesus believed in Jonah, a literal Jonah. Do you? Well, if Jesus did, we got to. We have to. I mean, that's what he says. He equates the three days that Jonah spent with the three days that he will spend in the earth. Now, perhaps it will help us to get up to speed and review just a little bit of the events that led to his entrance into Jerusalem. Now, on Friday evening, Jesus had arrived at Bethany at the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And he arrived there before sundown and had the Sabbath meal. 
and then spent the Sabbath from sundown on Friday until sundown on Saturday with them. And then in John 12, it, it tells us that on Saturday night, a dinner was held in the honor of Jesus at the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And that was the time when Mary anointed Jesus' feet. Now, the next morning, Jesus and his disciples leave Bethany. And as they got closer to Jerusalem, they come to this little village, Bethpage. And he says, look, I want you to go in to a couple of his disciples. I want you to go in. There'll be a donkey there and a foal. Nobody's ever ridden that one before. I want you to get it and bring it here. If anybody asks, say, the Lord has need of him, and it'll be okay. And that's exactly what happens. Mark tells us that Jesus rode on a foal that had never been ridden before. This is the prophet Zechariah talks about. So as he nears the city, the multitude that was with him begins to sing songs of ascent. See, there's the, there are a group of 113 to 118, I believe, in the Psalms. There are Psalms of ascent, and these were sung for people who were on their way to Jerusalem for the Passover. So they began to sing Psalm, portions of Psalm 118 that we see. Um, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. They were quoting from what they knew because as they saw Jesus coming in, he was fitting to a large degree the coming of the Messiah, which Psalm 118 talks about. So the enthusiasm of the crowd begins to build and the people start throwing their garments down on the road. I mean, when was the last time you threw your coat down on the road for somebody to walk over? Okay, well, that's what they did as a sign of honor and respect. And then they took the palm branches. That's why we have the palms. And they, they waved them or laid them down in the road so that they would he would ride over them. And they began to call out these messianic phrases. This was the Messiah they felt that they had been waiting now, entering Jerusalem, as I said, this fulfills the passage that we read from Zechariah chapter 9, that the promised Messiah will come in a certain way. So first off, if, if we don't have to go back to Zechariah, but it says, Behold, your king is coming to you. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you. So the first thing that is stressed is that Jesus is their king. He is the people's king. It doesn't say that he comes as some conquering despot or tyrant. Uh, he comes in gentleness, and he comes in peace, and he comes in graciousness. And he doesn't come for judgment. Not this time. That, that time is coming. He comes to bless, not to oppress. He comes to set them free, not to enslave them. This is the Lord of the universe. This is the one who has left the right hand of the Father. All power and authority was invested with him, and he gave that up, and he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey that's not his without a saddle. That's the Lord of all the earth. G.K. Chesterton has written a poem called The Donkey. Let me read it to you. When fishes flew and forests walked and figs grew upon thorn, some moment when the moon was blood, then surely I was born. With monstrous head and sickening cry and ears like errant wings, the devil's walking parity on all four-footed things. The tattered outlaw of the earth of ancient crooked will, starve, scourge, deride me, I am dumb. I keep my secret still. Fools, for I also had my hour, one far fierce hour and sweet. There was a shout about my ears. And palms before my feet. Just the events of the entrance of Jerusalem from the donkey's perspective. Now contrast this entrance 
with human kings who like to show off, who like to demonstrate in their entrances, in their coronations, tremendous, almost inconceivable wealth and splendor. When Queen Victoria was crowned in uh, 1838, the crown that she wore was made was full of rubies and sapphires. The middle of the crown had a 309-carat diamond. Three, 309-carat. Now, ladies, look at your fingers. If you've got a one-carat diamond on there, just multiply that by that much. But it gets even better. The scepter in which she took had on the end of it a diamond that was 516 and a half carats. And that was cut out of another diamond that was even larger. Now, to contrast the the coming of Jesus and and his arrival even further, let's look at somebody who was around that time of Jesus, a guy named Augustus Caesar. Now, he carried the title of the imperial man. And it turns out, in fact, he was not the man who would restore freedom, but he was the man who would take freedom freedom from everyone. He was called the divine Caesar, the son of God, that gave him titles that belonged only to one guy, only to one guy. Augustus, the imperial man, destroyed his enemies by force, and he couldn't bring about everything that he promised. Then along comes Jesus, who is the prince of peace. He changed the world completely in a very different fashion. He did not use force. He came in on a donkey's colt, with a bunch of branches and old clothes laid on the road before him. This is how the king arrives in Jerusalem. But he was really no ordinary king. Remember when he said to Pilate, he says, I am not a king in the way you think kings are. My kingdom is not of this world. Now the crowds are initially very enthusiastic, very enthusiastic about Jesus. But we have to remember, what are these crowds doing later in the week? Uh, they're all yelling to crucify him. Maybe not all of them, but plenty of them are. They're yelling for his, his death. Now, this ought to remind us that living according to polls and to what's popular and what the crowd thinks is never really the smartest thing to do. Jesus said, I'm about my father's business. He said, this is what I'm here to do, and I'm not going to get caught up in this, this crowd and the enthusiasm that they want me to be something else. I am this, and this is what I will do. J.C. Ryle says, this is proof of the utter folly of thinking more of the praise of man than the praise of God. Jesus was conducting his father's business. That's why he's here. Now, for a time, the public declarations, more than anything else, Jesus, for a time, the public declares Jesus is the king. But they really don't believe that in their hearts because he doesn't fulfill their expectations. He doesn't come as a conquering hero. He comes humbly and they're scratching their heads going, you know, I I really thought you were going to get rid of those pesky Romans. I thought you were going to set us up, the covenant people, as the people in charge. But you come along and say, no, that's not the way it's going to be. Jesus now does everything in the open. There's no more, don't tell anybody. There's no more, you know, don't show anybody about what I've done. It's very clear. Ryle again says, Before the great sacrifice for the sin of the world was offered up, it was right that every eye should be fixed upon the victim. So Jesus was doing things in a particular way as he entered Jerusalem. Now it's not uncommon for Old Testament prophets to also act out their message. And we see this in a couple places. Um, 
Jeremiah did this when he uh, built yokes and sent them out to the tribes. Uh, Ahijah, um, also he took a robe. This was before the, the, uh, Jeroboam was king. Um, and, and he gives them, he, he goes into Jeroboam, who's the king of the northern uh, going to be king of the northern territories, Israel, the northern kingdom, and he takes the rope and he cuts it into 12 pieces and he gives 10 of them to the Jeroboam. And he says, you're going to have 10 tribes. And he, then he takes the other two and he gives them to Rehoboam, who will be king of the southern kingdom, Judah. And he says, this was before the division of the kingdom. He said, this is what's coming. Okay, so he acted out the prophecy from the Lord. And then Jeremiah, as I said, uh, made yokes that, that would go on oxen, and he sent them out, saying, you will be in captivity. The yoke of the Babylonians will be upon you. In fact, he even put one on his own head and walked around, saying, and I'm going with you. I'm not going to desert you. I will be there in captivity as well. So in all these things that Jesus does here, why is he doing this? Uh, he says, I'm the king. I'm the one you've been waiting for. I'm the one that comes to save. And after the initial excitement, as I said, the people thought, well, I, I thought you were going to be more than that. I thought you were going to do more. But this is the example that we see so often in Scripture, where to be great, you have to be what? You have to be the least of these. You want to lead, you have to be a servant. Okay? How can a king, the king of all the universe, the king who was going to change our entire world, come in on a donkey? How can he have no army if he's going to conquer? Okay, the other thing, scripture. How can I be strong if I have to be weak? And then later in the week, we see people yell at him. Well, if you're so good, if you're so strong, if you're the son of God, get yourself off the cross. Look, he can't even get himself off the cross. How is he going to save us? But yet, this is the way scripture works. So often we think it should be this way because this is the way that we have defined God in our own minds, but yet he defines himself this way. He says, no, no, this is the way that I am. Don't think for a moment that we can ever define God, that we can ever define the way that he should be the way that he should act. Don't ever think that we define what is right and what is good. He, as the creator of all things, orders this world and defines what is good and what is right. Don't think for a moment that he will ever fit our human expectations. Well, you know, if I were God, I'd do it this way. That's always wrong, okay? Or we get so dis disheartened because we think that how could God act in this way? Well, he defines exactly how he is going to act. He tells us his character. He says, this is what I do. I do these things for what purpose? For his glory, for our good. And then we scratch our heads and, and we think that uh, well, God can't be good if he allows this suffering. God can't be good if he would send his son to die. That's not fair. But Isaiah says very clearly that it was the Father's will to crush him. And it is by his stripes that we are healed. God will act in the way that best serves his purposes, and his purposes are perfect and are right and are just, and they glorify him. Turn with me over to Revelation chapter 19. 
from these things, from the way that he enters into Jerusalem, we find that the very nature of his kingship, of his kingdom, is different from every other king in the world, and more so when he comes again. See, Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem created this so-called a season of salvation, during which time we can find salvation from the wrath and judgment of God. Because everyone is under that. Everyone faces that. There is no one who is good enough except Christ to avoid that. And the only one good enough who could avoid that took it all upon himself for the likes of us. There is a time when we can know Christ as our Lord and Savior. He has come to Jerusalem. He gives his life. And before he comes again, that is the time where we have to know him, to confess him, and to receive him as our Lord and Savior. This is the way he comes the next time. Look at Revelation 19, verse 11. Remember the first time. Donkey, palm branches, clothes in the street. The second time. And I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. And his eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems, and he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that it, with it he may smite the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is how he's going to enter next time. And there will be no time for salvation then. That will be the time of judgment. He comes humbly now that we might know him. Paul says today is the day of salvation. It's not tomorrow. It's not the next day. It's not later on because he will return in this fashion. And there will be terrible judgment for those who do not know him, for those whose lives have not been changed by his grace and his mercy. So let's pray. Lord, there is such a difference here between your first coming, your first entrance as king into Jerusalem on a humble beast that you don't own, no saddle, just some clothes laid on its back. You come not with an army. You come to the shouts of the people who are fickle and who will later shout something else to you later in the week. You come willingly. You come to give and to serve, to lay down your life for us. And that we know, as we will celebrate next week, that three days later you come out of the tomb. And that tomb is empty. So that we might know the same resurrection that you do. And Lord, you give us this gift of salvation that is undeserved, that we cannot earn, Yet you call us. You call us by name. You draw us unto yourself. You give us new life. You say today is the day of salvation. It is not tomorrow. It is not next week. It is today that 
that when you speak to us, when you draw us unto yourself, our life can be forever changed. Because what awaits at your second coming is terrible. For you come at the head of an army. You come with the hosts from heaven. You come in judgment and wrath on those things of sin. And only your precious blood can save us from those things. Heavenly Father, move in our hearts today that we might answer the question each into our own heart, who is our king? And just because you came humbly and with graciousness and without the fanfare of human kings doesn't mean you don't have all the power and all the authority. That we might answer the question, who is our king today? That none of us would leave here without the answer being, Jesus Christ is my king. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords, my savior. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.